Okay, welcome back. So, and welcome to some who are here for the first time. Excellent. So, bird's eye view of the Bible. Last time we did a lightning fast historical survey from... Uh, no, we're going to keep those off, Mary Carol. Thanks. Uh, historical uh, survey from Abraham to Daniel, I guess. And, uh, and then we started to look at Torah. And we did a survey of Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Yes. Um, so the beginnings of Israel, dating from Abraham and through his family, and then uh, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, getting out of Egypt. Uh, and some of the key points we noted with Abraham is that uh, he had a purpose beyond himself, that is God's call for him to come from his homeland to somewhere else, had a purpose that was beyond himself. Yes, God was going to make a great family out of him, but it was so that all the families of the earth would find blessing in Abraham. Uh, and then when we found the foundation of Israel as a nation, uh, after they had crossed the Red Sea and they were at the foot of Mount Sinai, they're just about to get the law, we found that uh, Israel as a nation has a vocation. Uh, you are going to be uh, a holy nation, you're going to be a nation of priests, the whole nation is going to be priests, because, God says, all the earth is mine. And so Israel is to be a, a, a priest to the world. Okay, so there's a, some, some keys in that overall story of how we understand things. But uh, before we go on, we want to look now at some specific themes that are prominent in Torah, uh, creation and law, covenant and worship. Are there any questions that arose from last time that, uh, that you'd like to bring up? Tribes and everything. Yeah, we talked about the tribes. Yeah, and when I was twelve tribes. I was looking, in my Bible it had the, the kind of a family tree type thing. Mm -hmm. But Ishmael didn't have anything from there. Yeah. He's just that standalone. Yeah, uh, the Bible doesn't follow his his storyline. Okay. I just thought maybe very very important to um, to uh, Islam yeah. Yeah. Who, else, uh, who was recording history at that time that we could read like people not not biblical people but historians well um when you're back to what is the second millennium, right. so more than a thousand years um, before Christ, um, what you have is a lot of family lore that gets passed on from generation to generation. Right. 
so you don't now you don't have history in the sense that we understand history in fact I would argue that um, the development of Israel is one of the key factors in um, developing a, a historical consciousness because the the sense is that we as a nation were came from here and we're going somewhere so history has meaning it, it's unlike say in Egypt where history is a, is a big circle that repeats itself um, within Israel history has a there's a past and there's a future where God is going to fix everything that's wrong yeah uh, so, so I would I would say that, that, that Israel becomes very uh, important uh, for a historical consciousness of course the Greeks you look to the Greeks um, for some of the first what we would understand as being history writing. Uh, but when you're talking about the second millennium, um, you're looking to archaeology, you're looking to um, stories that have been passed on verbally from generation to generation. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Oh. I had a prayer for you. A prayer for Jeff. Thank you. Good clue there, Mary Carol. <laughs> Your lovely assistant, Ben, away. He's right. <laughs> uh, since we're talking about creation here, uh, this is a. Uh, a prayer that has creation at its heart. It's a Celtic prayer. Um, so let us pray. O Son of God, perform a miracle for me. Change my heart. You whose crimson blood redeems mankind, whiten my heart. You who makes the sun bright and the ice sparkle. You who makes the rivers flow and the salmon leap. Your skilled hand makes the nut tree blossom and the corn turn golden. Your spirit composes the songs of the birds and the buzz of the bees. Your creation is a million wondrous miracles, beautiful to behold. I ask of you just one more miracle. Beautify my soul. Amen. Okay, let's talk about creation. Now, uh, one of the things about creation, uh, when I say creation in the context of the Old Testament, our minds immediately go back to Genesis 1. Uh, but I want to say some other things before we get there. Um, the focus uh, in most Old Testament texts that speak of creation is not primarily on an act of God in the past, but rather on creation as an existential reality, what it is for us here and now. 
So, for example, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. We look to the world around us and we see manifest the glory of God. Or you might turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 8. Just look at that briefly here. Where's Proverbs? Proverbs chapter 8. This is an account of, uh, it's a reflection on creation. Uh, The Lord created me at the beginning of his work. The me there is a character wisdom. Wisdom is being personified in a sense. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago, uh, and then he goes on. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker. Uh, And and so it's wisdom talking about her role, it's a feminine noun, uh, her role with God in creation, but the implication is that when Hebrews, when Israelites looked at the natural world around them, thought about the, the world, they saw reflected there God's wisdom. Okay. Now, outside of poetry, and Psalm 19 in Proverbs 8 is poetry, um, we don't get a lot out of reflection on creation. Poetry is the common way in which Israelite writers reflected on creation. And in fact, in a lot of the poetry that reflects on creation, we find the poets using the, their imagination in an inspired expression about the world as a place created by God, but using language that was common to Israel's neighbors uh, about that went into the mythology of how the cosmos came to be. Now, I'm not saying there that Israelites were borrowing from their neighbors. I'm saying that the Israelite poets, their conversation partners, were their uh, neighbors. I want to show you uh, how uh, some of this is. Uh, First of all, what is the... Uh, creation myth that predominates among Israel's neighbors. Well, there was a common story, or a common myth, if you like, and it came to expression in various ways. For example, in Mesopotamia, uh, we find the tale of Enuma Elish. You can go down to the bookstore and buy a copy of Enuma Elish, if you like. 
Uh, but it tells of a great battle between the god Marduk and the goddess Tiamat. And Marduk kills Tiamat and makes the heavens and the earth out of her corpse. In Egypt, the battle is between the creator god Ray and the dragon Apophis. In Ugarit, which is up the coast, uh, the Syrian coast, Ugarit, uh, where they found a lot of there's a um, lot of archaeological finds there. That's why it's important. Um, the myth is expressed in terms of Baal battles. That's the Canaanite god Baal. Uh, Baal battles the forces of destruction and death, referred to as a prince Yam, which is the word for the sea, and Judge Nahar which is the word for river. Oh, and Lotan, which is the word for Leviathan. That's how it comes out in Hebrew, who is the seven-headed serpent. Okay? So that's the, the, the variations from one culture to another, but you get the idea that there's one god battling another god, and um, out of that comes creation. So what happens when Israelite authors, uh, poets, reflect on this and express their interest in creation? For example, uh, Psalm 74, verse 13. You divided the sea, the Hebrew word is yam, by your might. You broke the heads of the dragons in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. And this is in the context of celebrating creation. It's in the Bible. <laughs> um, so it's, it's interesting. They're reflecting. So it, it is Yahweh who, who, who won these battles. Right. Uh, another one, Psalm 89 you rule the raging of the sea, the yam. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. That's not the woman who helped them at Jericho. That's, that's the monster uh, that is reflected in other ancient Near Eastern uh, cosmogenies is, is the word. Descriptions of how the cosmos came to be. You crushed Rahab like a carpet carcass. You scattered your enemies uh, with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also, uh, the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. So again, it is Yahweh, not Baal, not uh, Marduk, uh, whatever. Right? And then a, a really interesting one in, Psalm, in Isaiah 51 Awake, awake, put on your strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generation of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Okay, there's a reflection on that creation cosmogony. Now watch where it goes. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to cross over. What's happening there? What's that story? 
Exodus. And so what, in two verses, you have a conflation of the story of creation and the story of redemption or salvation or liberation. The two are coming together, right? Uh, and so it won't surprise us when we get to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul says something like, everyone who is in Christ, there is new creation. Right? The, 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 the stories of salvation and creation become uh, um, overlapping. But then notice where this is going in the next verse. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now you might not know this, but the setting for this poem is Babylon. And we're hoping to come back to the promised land. Uh, so it's hope for future deliverance. So in just three verses, you've got creation, you've got memory of God uh, liberating us out of Egypt, and then you've got hope for um, uh, future re uh, restoration uh, coming back to the promised land. In incredible. But, it, but my point was that with the creation part, the um, authors are often reflecting on this um, <clears throat> mythology, uh, cosmogony of her neighbors with the various monsters and so forth, showing that it is Yahweh who wins the battle, not um, Baal or Marduk or Ray. Right. Any questions on that? Okay. So let's go to Genesis. Uh, chapter one, then, and see what we make out of this. What's what's going on then um, in the first few chapters of Genesis? Um, if it if Israelites are reading or understanding creation in that context, where there are other stories of creation around. What is it that Genesis 1, for example, is trying to say? And part of the problem that we have today is that as soon as we go to Genesis 1, we think in terms of the various debates that Christians and scientists have had about how the world came to be and does it agree with the Bible and so on and so forth. And I'm going to suggest, actually, that the debates are just misfounded. That, that Genesis 1 actually isn't telling that's the same story as what science is doing. It, it's, it's, it's just a different story. And um, so, so what is it saying, then? I'm going to suggest a few things that um, uh, Genesis 1, in particular, is saying. Um, first of all, uh, I know we don't, we're not taking time to read it, but it would be good to read Genesis 1. <laughs> uh, 
But uh, one of the things that Genesis 1 is saying is that uh, God is one, not many. When you read Genesis 1, actually the battle uh, component that is in those other, uh, her surrounding neighbors, is reduced to a minimum. It's not like there's a great battle and uh, we didn't know who was going to win and fortunately Yahweh won in the end. Uh, Yahweh is sovereign. God is sovereign in Genesis 1. Um, the sea creatures are simply creatures. God creates them. Um, the world is not a world populated with competing deities, Yahweh being one of them. Uh, the sun, the moon, and the stars, it, it says uh, God created these to rule over the day uh, and over the night, and they do so only with God's permission. They're not deities. They're not even named. So this is a contrast with Israel's neighbors, which were polytheistic. And all of these things would be, the sun would be reflective of a deity, the moon, uh, similarly. Um, it's, it's like the Genesis 1 demythologizes creation compared to her neighbors. Okay, the second thing uh, that I'd say that Genesis 1 does is it shows us that God is separate from his creation. Creation itself is not divine. It's been evacuated of God's. Uh, the, the order of creation is by the divine word. And God said, let there be. As a consequence, Israel opposes the use of magic because it seeks to manipulate divine power. It also opposes images of God in worship. Why? Because there's a fundamental distinction between God and creation. And so hence in the second commandment, you shall have no, you shall not make for yourselves any uh, images. There's going to be one caveat to that in just a minute, but that's what's behind that second commandment. Uh, thirdly, human beings are neither gods nor slaves of gods, but they're made in God's image. Now that's in contrast to other cultures in the ancient Near East where it was the king who was in the image of God and only the king. Humans were created as servants of the gods. They were to keep the gods supplied with food 
That's what people are around for. And so ancient Near Eastern culture is inherently hierarchical with God and the king and then uh, various people and slaves at the bottom. <clears throat> Contrary to this, Genesis 1 claims that all humans are made in the image of God, both male and female. Which would have been a radical thing to say in the, in the time. Yes, there is ruling to be done, but the ruling is to be done by all humans. So there's a massive democratization of that uh, caring for creation, uh, indeed leading to an egalitarian society. Okay? Okay so far? One more thing to say. Uh, oh, interesting thing on Deuteronomy 17. Uh, note doesn't have anything to do with creation, but it, it's, a, it's a statement of the limit of power given to the king. Only he, the king, must not multiply horses for himself, and he shall not multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he greatly multiply for himself silver and gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's in the context of what we're talking about creation. The king was not to be that kind of person uh, that the king was in Israel's neighbors, you know, above everybody else. You can have horses, you can have silver and gold, but not too much. Uh, there's a limit on how much the uh, authority the king was to have. Okay, now, um, I find this part uh, really quite interesting. Genesis 1-3 to read in light of the architecture of ancient Near Eastern temples. That's what the A-N-E stands for, by the way. Ancient Near Eastern. Um, Ancient Near Eastern temples were often designed to reflect the structure of the whole cosmos. As it was described in the various mythologies of the, uh, those people. Temples were an embodiment to the truth claims of the myth. They're designed to signify the, the rule of, a partic of particular deities in the world and to portray the cosmic center of the world. So that was a temple in the ancient Near East. You went into the temple and it was adorned in various ways to reflect the cosmos. Okay. Um, and this is true in Israel too, both with the tabernacle and the temple. And there's some interesting correlations between the Genesis account, Genesis 1 account, and what we read of later with regard to the tabernacle and the temple. And what I'm going to say here is that while the temple, say, reflects the cosmos, Genesis 1 is written in such a way to say that the cosmos is God's temple. 
And there's just some interesting clues here. Uh, the Hebrew word ma'or uh, is used of the lights of the heaven in Genesis 1, and elsewhere it's the light in the tabernacle. The phrase that God finished his work in uh, Genesis 2.2 is repeated when Moses finishes his work on the tabernacle, the end of Exodus. Genesis 1 speaks of the gathering of the waters, and in 1 Kings 7.23, there was in the temple a huge, what is it, brass? I can't remember, that wouldn't be brass, but a, 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 a metal um, sea, a, a huge uh, metal basin filled with water that represented the gathering of the seas. And so it's part of the uh, description of uh, Genesis 1. Sorry, I've had some of these here. Not in light of, yes. Um, yeah, Molten Sea, it's, it's, it's uh, called in 1 Kings 7.23. Huge thing. And then, if you're building a temple in the ancient Near East, what is the last thing you do in the construction of the temple? What's the last thing you that finishes the construction of the temple? Any guesses? No. What's the last thing you put in the temple? The image of the God. What's the last thing you do in creation? The last thing that God does in creation is he puts his image within the creation. Man. Yeah, man and woman. Okay, so, so what, what, what we're doing when we're reading Genesis 1 is we're seeing creation within a Israelite perspective it's reflective of being in a temple. All of creation is God's temple. Right. Isn't there some faith that that's how they, wor- they worship the nature of, of God? I'm not sure which one you're talking about. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, there are all kinds that <clears throat> we need to be careful what we're, what we're saying here. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, faiths that um, have creation as an object of worship. And that's definitely not what Genesis 1 is leading to. Creation is the context in which we worship God. Right? And so when we get later on, and Solomon builds his temple, Solomon is building a microcosm of creation. What did you say? Creation is... Creation is uh, um, God's temple in which he establishes, he, he puts his image... And his image is, is man. Man and woman. 
He's aspiring now. People are, a lot of people are worshiping the creation, the environmentalists and stuff, rather than the creator. No, I don't think it's why. I, I, I think you get there from a different route. But it's interesting, um, and I think environmentalists has helped Christian thinkers uh, to see uh, the importance of the world in which we live, not simply as a, um, a stage on which another drama takes place. I think that's how uh, Christian theology in the past often uh, described salvation. Creation was there to create a stage at, uh, for another story to, to take place. And I think what we find in, um, as we reread the Old Testament is, no, they're actually part of the same story. Creation and salvation, like we saw with Isaiah 51. Uh, creation and salvation are actually part of the same story. Yeah. Okay? And, and th this is the text then. Uh, in Genesis 1, 27, 28. So God created Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. He blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, etc. Yeah. Uh, again, you might think God blessed them. Oh, we talked about blessing last time in context with Abraham. Now, I said then, uh, Abraham being a blessing to others is reflective of what God, God did with Adam. God blessed them. Uh, and they were to uh, multiply, etc. Okay? So let's just... Um, uh, let's reflect then on... Um, the Genesis 1 account, uh, the world as it was intended versus the world as it had become. That's what we get in Genesis 1 to 3. So in, uh, we find the world as it was intended. It was harmonious. Um, the creator is in communion with people. The Creator uh, provides all that is needed. Oh, that's another point to, in contrast to her neighbors. I remember I said that people were around in order to provide food for the gods. In the Genesis story, it's God who feeds the people. He provides the garden. Okay. Um, all is good. God said it was good. Chaos is tamed and it's made useful. There is order. Um, there are not powers that threaten creation or God. And humankind is in partnership with delegated dignity and dominion. 
It's harmony and partnership between man and woman. Man and woman are jointly commissioned to take care of the world. A kingship derived from the creator. So that's the world as it was intended. How did the world become? Well, humans become alienated. So this is the story now of the fall with Adam and Eve disobeying. Yeah, humans become alienated from God and we see that um, with Adam and Eve hiding themselves from God, for example. Uh, humans become alienated from each other. Uh, woman blames the man and man the woman and you have brother against brother with Abel, um, Cain and Abel, and uh, communities break down. And you have uh, humans uh, alienated from non-human creation. So you are going to uh, work the ground, but it is now going to be toilsome labor. So that's uh, the world as it had become. And the point to make then is that restoration is about moving from the second vision back to the first vision. That's the problem that needs to be fixed. And it's the problem that we get to with Abraham. We, we expect then, okay, the, the choice of Abraham, the calling of Abraham is a step then to fix this problem. And we keep asking that question all the way through Exodus, all, all the way through Genesis. And we're still asking that question through Exodus and on and on. And we'll continue to ask that question throughout the Old Testament. How is this getting fixed? But the suggestion is that Abraham and the story that follows is en route to fixing that problem. Okay. So any questions then? That's creation. Fast and furious. It's interesting. I haven't said anything about science, but I think what I've said is how Jews would have understood the text. Okay. Okay, let's move on. Let's talk about covenant uh, br uh, briefly. Uh, this is um, an interesting and significant um, aspect of Torah. Uh, I think I'll go fairly quickly here. Uh, the use of the word covenant, berit, is the Hebrew word. And it appears, it describes relationships between people you can have an alliance between people. You can look these up uh, at home if you like. Um, you can have covenants between a king and their subjects, um, a, a, a friendship. Uh, uh, David and Jonathan had a covenant, for example. So a covenant is an agreement in which a relationship is established and involves certain obligations on each side. So this is the sort of the non-theological meaning of the word. Uh, so that's helpful when we come to understand a covenant between people and God. 
so uh, one of the interesting things is that we have discovered a number of ancient Near Eastern treaties that have a particular covenant format. Um, I'm not going to go into this uh, too much either, but um, uh, uh, if you 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 find there's a preamble, there's a historical prologue. This is this is a, a, a summary of the relationships between uh, typically the conquering king and the subdued nation. Uh, so this is the relationship we've had. Now we're going to make a covenant. There's basic stipulations that the conquering king has. Um, who, who is promising allegiance to whom. <laughs> and then there's the actual covenant clauses laying down the law. And then there's blessings and curses attached to the keeping or the breaking of the law. Okay, so it, I'm just saying that there's a format. There's a pattern that these covenant documents tend to take. Um, now, what's interesting is in the Old Testament, um, um, there's some t- uh, the 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 word covenant is used to describe the relationship between various people and God, and sometimes uh, this pattern that we find in ancient Near Eastern treaties is used. Interesting. Uh, why not? Why, 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 why wouldn't it? Uh, so there's a variety of uh, covenants that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, there's a covenant that God has with Noah. You know, I'm not going to just destroy the, the world with a flood again. There's a covenant with Abraham uh, in Genesis 12. Covenant is with one family, but the intention is to bring restoration to all people. Uh, this is the covenant that God remembers later on, uh, and so on. Then there's the Sinai covenant. We saw this text last time. Uh, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall uh, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Um, now, this is one of the places, uh, chapters 19 to 23, where some of that um, treaty, covenant treaty pattern uh, is evident. So you set up, um, this is like a, um, a preamble statement and then when you get to chapter 20, you get some of the, uh, uh, through to 23, you get the, de- the details, the stipulations of the covenant obligations. Mm-hmm. The, these, these are the laws that you are to follow. Okay. Um, that's fine. I'm not going to go through the details of that. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is an interesting one. The whole book of Deuteronomy uh, is like a massive covenant treaty. It starts out with a historical reflection um, of God's dealings with Israel that goes into the, uh, the, the various stipulations, the covenant stipulations of um, what you, how you are to behave. And then at the end, uh, Moses stands up and says, um, okay, now here are the blessings and the curses. 
Blessings if you obey, curses if you disobey. It's following a pattern from the ancient Near East. is devised by men, the people of the time, the leaders of the time, is it difficult to separate what they contrived from what is divine? I'm, I'm kind of struggling with that a little bit. Oh. This kind of sounds like lawyers. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I want to I want to move into what's the significance of that. Okay. Um, perhaps what I'll say is uh, we speak of the Bible as God's word, but we don't have the same understanding of Scripture or of inspiration, if you like as, let's say, what our Muslim friends have. In Islam, uh, God actually said those words that are in the Quran. Uh, God speaks Arabic. And so you should learn Arabic if you're a Muslim, right? Whereas, the doctrine of scripture in Christian tradition is one where God's word always comes through uh, human forms. Mm-hmm. So it's always there. Human culture is always there. Mm-hmm. Human vocabulary and figures of speech are always there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, strictly speaking, the answer to your question is it's never possible. It's never possible to separate those two. Mm-hmm. It's, it, okay. They're always bound up together. Yeah. yeah. And that's intended by. Yeah. yeah there's there's there, there's no pure word of God that is divorced from uh, human expression. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's just say a few things about the significance of using covenant language. Um, so in, in, in light of what a covenant relationship is, you have uh, the divine human relationship is not one of equals. So when you had the conquering king and he's um, making a deal with the vassal, uh, country that he's just conquered, he's making a covenant, it's not an equal relationship. So that would be one implication, is that it's not a, the, the, this covenant between Israel and God is not a, a relationship between equals. <laughs> You've got to say who's who here. <laughs> um, secondly, uh, this is in contrast to Canaanite religion, and other ancient Near Eastern religions in general, uh, where the gods were more or less equivalent to nature, and hence there was no great gap between the gods and people. 
gods may have been more powerful, more uh, stronger, but they were part of creation, part of part of the world around them. Um, Hence the emphasis on fertility rights in Israel's neighbors. Um, because there are direct relation, uh, connections between um, this realm and the other realm. Um, so that's something that was not to happen. The, the, the point in Israel's neighbors is if you get the rituals right, then we can get the effects that we want. Okay, and that's what doesn't happen in Israel. What's what what what's going to happen more in Israel is the relationship that you have in a in 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 a covenant. If the if the lesser party wants uh, something to happen, he brings an entreaty to the greater power. In other words, you pray. It's not a ritual um, that, that's involved. Uh, what else do we say? We are invited to read the covenant relationships in light of the creation narrative that opens the Bible. So in, in Old Testament thinking, God's disposition towards people is governed more by promise and ethics than by ritual. Well, that's some of the things that I was just saying. Um, an example I have here, uh, Elijah um, contesting with the prophets of Baal. Uh, and you remember the story, there's two, there's two altars and the prophets of Baal uh, do their thing. And what does Elijah do when Baal doesn't show up what he does not do is he doesn't perform a ritual to make uh, Yahweh's sacrifice erupt in fire. He prays. So it's a personal relationship that is uh, underscored here rather than one in which if you do the right things, you say the right words, um, you perform the right actions, then you'll get whatever you, uh, what, what, whatever needs to be done. Um, yeah. Okay, and then what else to say here? Covenant, um, covenant should be set within the context of the creation theme of the Old Testament. Yes. Um, So when I went through um, a seminary, I remember studying Old Testament. One particular author, very uh, prominent author at the time, organized his understanding of the Old Testament around covenant. Um, and this took into um, account all of the Old Testament except not so much of creation. And the point to be made here is that covenant, the relationship between God and people, needs to be understood within the context of creation itself. Let's talk a little bit about law.
everyone's favorite topic in the Old Testament. Did you know that 25% of the Old Testament is designated law, or Torah? Although we've said that not all of Torah is laws. Still, the general, the general impression, I think, if you ask people, is that the Old Testament is about laws. Right. Uh, in Israelite thinking, law was regarded as an absolutely foundational element of life. Uh, the law is given a prominent place in the Exodus narrative. So that's interesting. So you've got the, the Exodus narrative. Uh, this is the story of liberation. And right there in the middle of it, you've got the giving of law. So it is um, highlighted in the narrative. <coughs> The Pentateuch was the first section of the Old Testament to be canonized, so far as we can tell. So we have the three sections, Torah, uh, Prophets, and then Writings. Uh, so you remember, uh, perhaps, in the New Testament, uh, reference to the Law and the Prophets? So that, at Jesus' time, was probably what, I don't know if they used a, a term like canon, but that was a settled scripture at that time. Uh, the rest of the books weren't settled until probably the end of the first century um, after Christ. The writings. Uh, so anyways, fine. What else do we know? So let's talk about the nature of the law or the covenant law code, and we'll look here particularly at Exodus 20 to 23. What do we have here? Um, so Exodus 20 begins with uh, what we call the Ten Commandments. And what kind of law is this? The, the term for uh, this kind of law is apodictic law, and that's a technical term meaning uh, it's, a, it's a statement of what you're to do or not do without any reference to penalty. Okay, it's just, uh, it, I suppose it's a bit, if you wanted to draw an analogy to what we have, it would be closest to um, our constitution, right? It's when you get to the Criminal Code of Canada that you get um, statements of uh, what kind of penalty there would be for such a crime and so forth. Right? So you have these, um, these uh, ten, ten, ten Commandments, some of them saying what you should do, and some of them saying what you are not to do. They don't include punishments, uh, as in case laws, which are to follow. They're more like constitutional law. Um, very important is the preamble in Exodus 20. If you haven't noticed this, notice it. <laughs> Exodus 20 begins with, 
the statement, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then it says, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make any graven image, etc. Okay. The point first is, it, it, it's not that, okay, if you have no other gods before me and you don't have any graven images and you don't steal and you don't commit adultery, then you will be my people. It doesn't say that. It says you are my people. I have brought you out of slavery. Then this is the way you live. That's actually pretty important to get that order right. <laughs> it's huge. It, it's, it's called grace, yeah. right? Um, it, yeah, it's, uh, we, we, don't, we don't become people of God by our merit. I'm just, just reading you know, the second point. He's made up for redeemed people, not a path for redemption. My heart went yeah. oh, immediately in reading that because how often, you know, you go through the old, not that I committed murder and all that, all that often, yeah. but you know, going through the old. <laughs> to, huh. I, there's no way I can, as a human being, live up to, yeah. you know, the things that God has laid forward saying, this is how I want you to That's live. That's right. And so. Constantly, you know, you're you're down on yourself, and and that. Whereas, it, it's the grace. You have to be reminded of the grace and go. That's right. You know, and so that just hit. That's mm -hmm. got packs a punch. And so let's just remember this. Um, that is not the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. So it's 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 not that God saves us by grace in the New Testament, but God saved people by law in the Old Testament. No, no. <laughs> God saved people by grace in the Old Testament yes. too. Yes. So we're going to have to think a bit more, uh, a bit more carefully about what's that difference between uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Why do, why don't they have more? But why wasn't it grace talked about more in the Old Testament? It is. It is? Yeah. And I just yeah. missed the boat. Well, <laughs> well the, the, this text here, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. Uh, I, mean, I mean, that's a statement of grace. Mm -hmm. I, I, I did this not because of what you did. Uh, I did it. I just chose you. And I brought you out of slavery. Okay. Is it more subtle? Or just not necessarily it's subtle to us, but it's, you know, I mean, it's not in our face, like you would think. Yeah. Um, it comes in, in the Psalms uh, quite, mm -hmm. quite commonly. Um, the Hebrew word is hesed. Uh, H E S E D, which, or perhaps C H E S E D, Chesed. It's, it's a, uh, that's the word for grace or loving kindness. Um, yeah, it it comes up numerous places. It, it, um, Ref reflecting God's attitude towards us. 
back then was redeemed, were redeemed people just Jewish or Gentiles included in the redeemed people as well? We're only getting Israel's story. Only Israel, okay. Yeah. Uh, these are not best thought of as a summary of all that is good. Oh, now this is interesting. The laws of the Old Testament are not a summary of all that is good. They say what you shouldn't do, or, or sometimes what you should do, not all, but not all of what you should do. They're highly selective. Um, that shouldn't be that surprising. If you wanted to be a good Canadian, yeah, you wanted to be good. You wanted to be a, a good person in, in society. Where, uh, what would you do? Well, you'd go to the Criminal Code of Canada and make sure you obey all of those laws, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't looked in years. <laughs> now, it's a bit of a miscomparison, uh, but it's actually not that difficult to obey all the laws yeah. of the Criminal Code of Canada. <laughs> we do it without ever reading it. But, but that's not what we understand to be goodness. That's not what you understand. You, you wouldn't point to that person as a good person just because they do that. Goodness is something more, and that's true in the Old Testament too. There are no laws that talk about... Um, Generosity, and yet generosity is one of the uh, fundamental things that God calls of his people in the Old Testament. Uh, but Public this, empathy, that would be kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we need to do more to talk about goodness um, than simply read the law. Uh, they're highly selective. Um, okay, so uh, just stay on the theme of, of uh, generosity. So you remember the story of Jesus and the young man who comes to him and says, I have done all these things. Uh, and lists off the Ten Commandments, or you know, most of them. Uh, I have d done all these things since you know, I was a little kid. Uh, what's, what do I still lack? And what does Jesus say? Generosity. Okay, so you can, you, you can obey the law to a fine detail and not be generous. Okay, uh, so that's, um, that's a good story that, uh, that uh, points that out. Now, uh, I'm not going to go through law by law. Um, we're doing that every Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we? <laughs> Reflecting on the Ten Commandments. Um, when you get to chapter, uh, after the Ten Commandments, then you get into case law. So you've got the principle stated in the Ten Commandments, and then the, the case laws that follow, uh, whether civil or criminal, uh, work out those uh, principles. So case laws, they're illustrations of how laws are to be worked out. Uh, they're rooted in specific historical cultural contexts. They do not necessarily prescribe the ideals of human behavior, and indeed they could change over time. 
and I'm just trying to remember how much I, I give you here. Okay, so uh, this, the uh, sixth commandment about you shall not kill. Uh, now, what does Exodus 21 says? Anyone who strikes a person with a fatal blow is to be put to death. So there's the, there's the punishment. However, if it is not done intentionally, but God lets it happen, they are to flee to a place I will designate but if anyone schemes and kills someone deliberately, that person is to be taken from my altar and put to death. So uh, you, you see how the, the, this is case law, and it's working out what thou shalt not kill means in a specific situation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So there's, there's different. Uh, the, the first commandment. Oh, he, here's an interesting one on the first commandment. Um, uh, should be the second commandment. Second commandment about about. Well, uh, an altar. Um, so Exodus twenty it talks about an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings your sheep and your oxen. So what does it mean to? Um, you, you, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Uh, and then it says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So there's the case law for uh, the first commandment in the book of Exodus. Note how it, it gets adapted in the book of Deuteronomy. But you shall seek the, the place which the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. You shall, uh, there you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your offerings that you present, uh, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, the firstlings of your herd, etc. Um, the, the point in the book of Deuteronomy is there is one place to worship, and it's Jerusalem in the temple. Okay. So okay. So this is a few hundred years later, uh, and the law has been adapted to a new situation. It's 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 a new case. Okay. What else do we have? Um, ethical. The laws of today have been taken away from, like. Humanity, mankind has adapted the laws to come to be in so that they are not put out because they broke. There's consequences, aren't there? I guess is what it is. There are laws, but no consequences. Well, there are consequences. I mean, you can have, you, you you can be made to pay fines, or you can be made to go to jail. You you you're you're given that, but. How many people evade? You know, I mean, it's just yeah, it's just. Oh, it's yes, it's uh, it's much more complex yeah. today, and uh, with the complexity, there's, um, the, there's also. Justice. Um, like I've heard people say, "I'm parking here. I'll pay the fifteen dollar fine." Sure. It's a, it's a little bit of a you know. But, but I mean, that's the attitude people have. So I kill them, I go to jail for 10 years. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, 
doesn't mean that there isn't consequences eternally. Yeah, that's right. But I don't think some of those people are too worried about that. Um, yeah, we've worked through the consequences. It's interesting because we're, um, um, we are living in the Old Testament in a day when there was capital punishment. Um, there was severe punishment in some cases. Uh, more severe in Israel's neighbors, actually, than in Israel. Uh, but I want to get to some of that. Okay, sorry. Old Testament ethical ideals, let me see where we're going with that. Law is not the same thing as ethics, I've said that. Uh, here's a statement. The purpose of law in society is not to provide ethical ideals, but to deal with the brokenness of things in a pragmatic way with a view to fixing what is broken as much as it can be fixed and to prevent things from getting worse than they are. Have read over that again. That's what I'm suggesting that law is for. It's not for making them as, as good as they can be. It's for keeping things from becoming as bad as they could be. Okay. That's what law is. All law accommodates itself to human culture and sinfulness. So I've said some things about that as well. Okay. Um, okay, so here's an example which many of you will um, take interest in. The legal position of women in ancient Israel was not very different from the position of slaves. And uh, There's a number of texts that you could look up here. Uh, the wife is the property of the man. With regard to paying the equivalent in money rather than de uh, dedicating a person to the Lord, females are worth half as much as males. Laws, laws protecting sexual fidelity, as in no sex before marriage and no rape, can lead to very unpleasant living conditions for women. For example, she, if she was raped, then one of the options is that she gets married to the man who raped her. Um, the point I'd want to make here is this is a long ways from the egalitarian ideal that was presented in the creation narrative with male and female being created uh, together in the image of God and together being given um, responsibility for the creation. It's quite a ways from that. So, so what I'm saying then is, is the laws are, are dealing with perhaps um, a bad situation, uh, making it a little bit better so that it doesn't get worse. But, the, but in making it a little bit better doesn't mean it's making it ideal. Right. Jerry, do you think that about the non-egalitarian was because of Eve? Sorry? Because of Eve? Yeah, yeah. right. Just making sure. Yeah. But some of these, like the equality thing, um, that's how we started out, and that. But then some of the 
somewhere along the line, men read into it what they thought a woman's role was. And when I, my husband and I bought our home 60 years ago, I had to sign my name, Mrs. Robert Hargreaves. Yeah, yeah. interesting. I could not sign Legally, my name. you had to. Yeah, legally, I had to sign my name as that. Yeah. That was 60 years ago. Yeah. You know, and, and oh yeah, I, I, I would say, uh, I mean, we, we bristle today against the kind of hierarchy, uh, the male-female hierarchy um, ideal. Uh, let me just say a few things. That's probably still the system that most of the world operates under. Asia, Latin America, Africa. <laughs> so the woman is it's just the Western world, actually, yeah, that is. Yeah. And even then, it's. Yeah. Um, and it's a fairly recent thing. I, I, I mean, you know, the church that I grew up in, uh, when the preacher addressed the congregation and said, Brethren, no woman there felt left out. It was simply the way. Mm -hmm. It worked. We, you wouldn't dare do that today. I mean, I wasn't there that long ago that we got the vote. 1920s. Yeah. Yeah. And we so, were ahead of a lot of places. So you, yeah. it, it, in fact, the whole uh, suffrage movement I find really interesting. 100 years ago. So we're talking 100 years. That, that, that's it. It was not common sense that all women should get the vote alongside men. It was not common sense. It, it's certainly common sense now. It was not then. And so much has happened in the uh, last hundred years to change that. But a lot of times they use scripture as the reason why that Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, yes. You know, and, and that's... I was at a combined service of um, Baptists, and the, the group that our church had sent to be part of serving communion, the hosting church declined our way yeah. to serve communion. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I was, I was, uh, had the privilege of attending the World Council of Churches um, uh, meetings in Harare. Uh, this, this would have been 1999. Uh, I was just a visitor, just observing. But I remember whenever they did worship. Um, if there was a woman leading worship, then something else had to be done for the Orthodox Church because that wouldn't work in the in the in the Orthodox Church. See, when I was in uh, my graduate from seminary in '96, and at the time I was uh, seeing a fellow who was Ethiopian, had preached to ten thousand people. I mean, he was an MDiv guy, right? Yeah. And but there was another fellow that he knew. From Ethiopia there too, but uh, Celestia said he does this. He's here. His wife is here. Uh -huh. He said, Brenda, we walk together. Yeah. Different. No, that's right. And uh, look, and it's summer. And at that time, he said he was one of the only ones who who really, and I knew he meant that. He really did. Yeah. Uh, so it was pretty interesting to have him tell me. He says, Oh yeah, if we we. You know, we were gonna, but I, I didn't get married. But he yeah. said we will always be this way, and yeah. this way, and this other person, and a few others from wherever they were in the world. Yeah. It just happened to be Ethiopia. 
And I'm not necessarily critical of, of uh, people like that. No, he just said um, you, we would not be like that. That's right. You, know, you would be equal to me. So anyways, this is just an example of um, women in Israel. But th- these things, with, with, with the wife being the property of the, uh, mm-hmm. of the man, you can see that's problematic mm-hmm. in an, from an ideal perspective. So let's say something about the distinctive character of Israel's social laws. Um, some interesting things here. Israelite laws are commands of Yahweh. Um, in, in Israel's neighbors, they're, they're uh, commands of the king. Um, so it's, it's, uh, we, we do hear of it as the law of Moses, but Moses is declaring the word of the Lord. Uh, Israelite laws are both moral and religious. Remarkable thing about the Decalogue is not the superiority of the moral instruction over the moral standards of Israel's neighbors. Everybody said, you shall not kill, uh, etc. But that in Israel, these moral commands are inseparable from those commands which regulate the worship of God. So again, within the table of the Ten Commandments, you have uh, devotion to Yahweh and... Um, the stipulations, you should not kill, you should not commit adultery, you should not bear false witness, etc. Okay, so the idea is that both of those uh, are, are tied together. Uh, Israelite laws are marked by simplicity. Israelite laws focused on having a few basic commands. Uh, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. Sound like a lot? 613. Uh, do you want to have a look at the Criminal Code of Canada? <laughs> 613 pages. Yeah. Uh, impressed on one's heart and then applying these commands in various concrete situations based on sense of justice. Um, note how the command to love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19 uh, occurs within the context of a variety of commands that prohibit injustice against one's neighbor. So that becomes a general statement in the context of uh, promoting justice um, socially. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, we. I said there are 613 commands. Uh, I imagine that these are selective, quite frankly. Uh, I, I, I imagine the, uh, as it does for us, the, uh, a case law grows uh, and you get a better understanding of how to um, uh, judge cases as time goes on and you, you know, judges make rulings. And, and so I imagine that the 613 laws we have in the Old Testament are um, exemplary. Uh, that they are examples of uh, Israelite law. Is there anywhere they're all written down? I mean, Google has them. You have to, you have to uh, piece them together. Yeah, yeah, there ought to be a website that would have 613 laws on them. <laughs> yeah. I have nothing better to do with my Israelite laws display a deeper moral sensibility than what is found in other law codes. 
So, for example, there's a higher value placed on human life than on materialism. Uh, for example, there's no death penalty for crimes against property. You can never be put to death for stealing. Uh, there were laws that protected slaves from being misused. Uh, uh, that's different in, in Israel. You can't abuse your slave. Um, there, put it this way. There were limits on how much you could abuse, abuse your slave. But again, it, it's you know working within a culture, you're trying to make it somewhat better than it is, trying to move towards an ideal from where you are and keep things from getting worse. So higher value placed on human life. Um, punishment for crime does not involve gross brutality. So you... Um, again, for stealing, you do not have your hands cut off. And yet, that wasn't it. These without sin cast the first, they used to stone people to death. Oh, they may have stoned people. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there is still a death penalty for certain things. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm just saying there are some contrasts with Israel's neighbors in terms of hu uh, hu uh, hu human dignity. Um, and, and the human body. Uh, there's no class distinction in the administration of justice. There were not different laws for different groups in society, uh, and the foreigner has the same rights as the Israelites. That's a profound, that's a profound thing, that, that the foreigner uh, is under the same laws as, as, as the Israelite, it is protected by the same laws as the Israelite. Might not have all the same opportunities and privileges as the Israelite, not all, but quite a lot actually, um, that the, uh, the foreigner have. There you are, Exodus 12. There shall be one law for the native and for the foreigner who resides among you. Deuteronomy 1, I charge you, judges at the time, give the members of your community a fair hearing and judge rightly between one person and another, whether citizen or foreigner. You shall not be partial in judging. Hear out the small and the great alike. So the, again, the point, there's not one law for one set of people and another law for other people. Which is one of the things, uh, something like that, that prophets are going to rail about. Israelite uh, law gave some protection to women. Um, do I have that one here? Deuteronomy 24. Suppose a man enters into a marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. So he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And you f might say, well, that's quite unfair. First of all, it's only saying, what, what if the woman finds something un, un, objectionable about the man? But nope, she doesn't, have a, she, she doesn't have a recourse. But the point is, he has to write a certificate of divorce. He has to write um, uh, something that, that explains why she's no longer married. And that gives her something going on to wherever she's going on to next. Right? Uh, so there's something rather than nothing. 
remember when I read this in the Bible first, I was just shocked. I just I was like, are you kidding me? You know, like I was waiting for the yeah. heartbeat that explained Yeah, yeah, and it's not there. It's not there, that's right. And as, so that's very much why I say uh, the law is not trying to the law is not stipulating ideals, mm-hmm. but it's trying to make a bad situation a little bit better. Okay, right, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, let's talk about worship. Um, just a few things, because there's a whole lot in the Pentateuch that's all, that's about worship. Um, have Have we read the Book of Leviticus lately? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> we can say a few things about the place where people worshipped. Uh, for the patriarchs, like Abraham and his descendants, uh, they, they worshipped at various places where God revealed himself as they wandered about. And they would set up shrines. Uh, it may have been a tree. Um... They may have set up a pillar or an altar, uh, but that's what happens. That we, we we find that in the book of Genesis, in Exodus, the Israelites worshipped at a tabernacle, which was a a mobile, um, a structure that you could take down and put and uh, put back up again. And that's where God was present with them. Um, Kinds of sacrifices, there's all kinds of sacrifices that we find in, in uh, the book of Leviticus. I shall leave you to those. Um, let me just say, it's not easy to describe the purpose and workings of the various offerings. Uh, the offerings that we read of in the book of Leviticus may only be a sample of the entire system. That's probably true. Um, yeah. We're told to do things, or Israelites were told to do the sacrifices in particular ways, and presumably they all had significance at the time, but a lot of the significance uh, we're not sure of today. Okay. Some of it, some of it we can get, but um, some of it is just there. So you have there, um, there were burnt offerings and cereal offerings and peace offerings and guilt offerings. So a whole variety of kinds of offerings mm-hmm. that you did in various situations. Um, the significance of the sacrifices. I think we can say a few things then. Um, you would bring uh, an animal, let's say. I mean, you could bring something else, but in in the case of animals, it was one of your animals. Okay, if you traveled to Jerusalem, you bought an animal, but it it was yours. Uh, So there's a demonstration of ownership. It was also um, not an animal that was going to die anyways. It was one of the best animals that you had. Okay, so you gave to God your best. Um, 
And this was an expression when you sacrificed an animal, honoring God, thanking him, expressing penitence, dedicating yourself to a mission, uh, marking a new beginning, celebrating the transition of a dangerous event, for example, childbearing, um, and asking for forgiveness or atonement. And, and here's where we get when you're offering a sacrifice for forgiveness, we seem to be getting the idea of substitution. That is, this animal is dying and I am being forgiven. In some way, the animal is bearing um, my guilt. Be, be, becomes a big thing when you get get to the New Testament and trying to understand uh, Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, but just where we are in the Old Testament, note there's a whole lot of sacrifice going on that's not about forgiveness. It may be about I'm really thankful, and so I give thanks uh, by way of sacrifice. Um, it may be that I've just had a baby and I need to give sac a sacrifice for purification. Uh, you remember Joseph and Mary coming to the temple and doing the thing with the uh, doves? Okay. So all kinds of sacrifices. Um, and then there are three annual festivals that, uh, that we should know about. These are the Festival of Unleavened Bread, it's the barley uh, har harvest, and that's uh, Passover. Uh, um, so these, these three festivals, they were agricultural festivals already, and they became uh, added to that was, if you like, a religious significance. So the, the, um, the barley harvest uh, became uh, at the occasion for Passover, okay, uh, celebrating uh, liberation from slavery. Uh, the, fe the, the festival of the wheat harvest became the Feast of Weeks or uh, Tabernacles, Festival of Tabernacles. And here you're celebrating the giving of the law. And the festival of ingathering or the autumn harvest, oh sorry, the, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, not the Feast of Weeks. It's not the same as the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, but with the autumn harvest, you're uh, celebrating God's provision for 40 years in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land. So those three then pass over the Feast of Weeks and uh, uh, Feast of Tabernacles become the three main annual festivals where Jews would go up to Jerusalem um, to join in the celebration. Feast of Weeks becomes what in the Christian calendar? Thanksgiving. No. Pentecost. Yeah. Okay, any questions? Okay?
We've only got a few minutes, but I do. I I, I think we should use it just to get started on the uh, on the uh, next one on the on the prophets. Yeah, Maricol, could you pass those out? Just because I think we could. Where are you? So that's that's Torah done. That's a big. We spent more than half of our time on Torah, half of our Old Testament time on Torah, and, but for good reason. It's foundational. Um, so, in the last ten minutes here, we'll get started on prophets, and then talk about prophets and the writings uh, next time. What can we say about prophets in 10 minutes? Well, <laughs> let me say something. So um, the experience of prophecy more generally, so not talking about uh, the prophets like Samuel yet or the prophets like Amos and Isaiah yet, just more generally in the, uh, uh, in the ancient Near East and indeed within Israel, um, we hear of uh, various expressions of prophecy in association with practices such as divination and ecstasy. Do you understand what divination is? Uh, people come, uh, I come to you and ask a question and you use various, you manipulate various things to give me an answer or you interpret something to give me an answer, yes. like a, a crystal ball or something that would be... Um, people using to similar, similar. Um, uh, prophets were associated with different functions, so you'd have prophets in the, in the royal court. Uh, the king would have prophets, and he, uh, they would advise on various things, um, particularly war. Uh, uh, prophets would be consulted before going to war, and there would be prophets also associated in the temple. They were part of the temple working um, I'm not exactly sure, we're not exactly sure what they did in the temple, but they supported the temple establishment. Um, perhaps they were preachers. Mm. Backing up just a bit, you might have said it and my ears were closed. <clears throat> what is ecstasy? Uh, so, um, in Christian tradition, uh, spe uh, sp uh, speaking in tongues, oh. have you seen that? It, it's it's like an ecstatic expression, oh, okay. Okay. Uh, um, often in a, not in a recognizable language. Um, people seem to be possessed by another spirit. Uh, the, the, we see that in uh, some places. There's one involving Saul with the prophets coming behind him, and they're screaming various things. Okay, uh, so, but now uh, canonical prophets, uh, the prophets that are spoken of um, 
more positively in the Old Testament and indeed the prophets who write. Um, there's a few things about these uh, that distinguish them from prophecy more generally of what we've just talked about. That They may have unusual charismatic experiences and you look, look up those texts. Um, they testify to having had access to God's counsel. I'll talk about that perhaps next time. But their messages were always clear and comprehensible, at least to the people at the time. In other words, they weren't talking in riddles. Um, also, we don't have any indication that these prophets required training for what they did. You didn't go to prophet school. Although, around the prophets, just mentioning prophet school, around at least some of the prophets, there does seem to be a apprentices, perhaps you could call them. Um, we think that uh, these would be the people, when you get the written prophets, it's the school around Jeremiah that would have collected his, his writings together and uh, created a, um, a scroll uh, of his writings. Uh, but none of the prophets whose writings are in the Old Testament were employed as prophets. So they were not employed by the king and they were not employed at the temple. They did something else for a living. Um, okay, what else can we say? Uh, numerous people were called prophets early in the history of Israel, Abraham, Moses, Aaron, uh, Miriam, uh, the 70 elders of Israel, the judge warrior uh, Deborah. There you go, Deb. You, you got there. Um, yeah. Uh, the word prophetess is used of Deborah. And um, Miriam, it says Miriam prophesied when she was celebrating after the crossing of the Red Sea. Yeah. So that, that's interesting. So that's, those are pre-monarchy prophets. And then you get into early monarchy prophets. Um, so these are what we'll call the former prophets as opposed to the latter prophets. The latter prophets will be beginning with Isaiah. and In other words, they wrote down their prophecies. So the former prophets are who we find in Samuel and Kings uh, and, and various incidents. We find them um, addressing the king or doing whatever. Um, but the former prophets themselves, the books of Samuel and Kings, uh, remember in the Hebrew or, uh, organization of the Old Testament are with the Prophets, meaning those books, although they looked like history, were thought of as prophetic books because they interpreted the history prophetically. How so prophetically? Well, 
they interpreted what was going on around in light of what the book of Deuteronomy laid down. And so remember we called it Deuteronomistic history. If you do well, if you, if, if, if you obey these commandments, the nation will be blessed. If you don't keep these commandments, the nation will be cursed. If you keep not obeying these commandments, you'll be sent into exile. Okay? So uh, the book of Kings, for example, is explaining how did the nation end up in exile. Okay. Um, now, what do these prophets in Samuel and Kings do? Well, they anoint kings, they criticize and bring words of judgment against kings, they give counsel concerning war, they challenge people concerning their uh, devotion to God and how they, uh, how, how they treated their neighbors. Um, and in fact, Samuel becomes uh, the prototypical uh, prophet. Um, Samuel has an unusual sensitivity for hearing the word of the Lord. You remember the stories of uh, Samuel, of God calling to Samuel. Samuel, where are you? And the priest says, you know, finally gets the point. You know, if you hear it again, say, speak, Lord, uh, for your servant is listening. So he has an unusual sensitivity for hearing the word of the Lord. Uh, Samuel has, a th as Samuel grows up, it's very, very significant in how the story develops. Samuel has authority that was separate from the king. Remember I said he did not work for the king. So if you have a king in the land, who anoints the king as king? What, what authority makes the king king? Right? So Samuel, is, so the rise, the popularity perhaps of prophecy, of prophets, comes hand in hand with the rise of monarchy. You find prophets like Samuel and then Nathan and Gad and various others come uh, to have a role because there's now a king, a king with authority, and there needs to be somebody who tells him what his authority is. Right? So that's, that's, uh, that's what a prophet, that's what the role of a prophet. So Samuel anoints Saul as a king. He specifies the rights and duties of the king. He rebukes the king when he, had, when he acts uh, presumptuously. He even declares the end of the king's rule and he anoints the king's successor, who's not the king's son. Yeah. So this is the role that the prophet is having. He's, uh, you've, you've, you've got the rise of a kingship, so you need prophets to, in a sense, rein in, uh, the other kind of rain, rein in the king. <laughs> okay? Uh, so anyway, so that's, that's great. That's, that's Samuel. Uh, 
He has different authority. Okay, so then we'll, we'll uh, go from there uh, next time. But Samuel becomes the prototypical prophet, the, the pattern that other prophets are going to follow from. Okay, that's enough. That's enough.